You should have seen me watching the HD Tremors uh, last Saturday or whatever. Uh, Dude. That's beautiful. Tremors? Tremors? Oh, Tremors. 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 There's a Chicago accent. Tremors. Yeah. Yeah, Tremors. No, I went ward mode. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's. We all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, I'm one of your hosts, and with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and this week that was me, and then the other two hosts, after receiving the theme, are tasked with finding films in response to that theme, sometimes bumping up against it or exploring it in, in greater detail in ways that only the three of us can. And I was thinking about my journey with my fellow Gauntlet brothers here and thinking about all of the films we've watched as we've been getting closer and closer to having been doing this for a full year now, which is exciting. And, you know, one of the ways we've been celebrating that is Marsh cut together a lovely mixtape of sounds and music from the first um, 10 episodes of The Gauntlet. And I, I, I listened to it a few times, and it, it, it made me feel very warm, and it started making me feel very nostalgic for a lot of the films that we've watched on the podcast. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the way I was feeling nostalgic for films that have things that are totally outside of my own lived experience. And I was thinking about the way that films tend to invoke that feeling when there's a lot of spirit and love in them. They can make you feel nostalgic for things that haven't happened to you. And I think that's one of just the powerful ways that cinema has investigated memory, history, culture, etc. So I asked both of the boys here to bring me films that engage with that element of cinematic nostalgia. And it was uh, certainly a delightful pairing. One, the film Andy picked is one I've been meaning to watch for forever. Uh, so I was glad to finally encounter it. And Marsh picked one of just my certified popcorn classics, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, so I was glad to, to give it another watch. Um, and let's, yeah, Marsh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about that one first? Let's, let's hear what you picked. Well, I feel like uh, nostalgia can be, uh, you know, a, n- a negative thing to me when it's uh, not done right. And because of that, I wanted to pick something that invokes that certain sense of nostalgia and kind of looking back and, and kind of, you know, emotions, right? But I also wanted to pick something that, you know, undercuts that or challenges that, right? Because I do, yes, like you, Ryan, think it can be a very powerful thing, right? Especially uh, when we have artists, you know, remembering, you know, 
earlier times in in the case of both of these films that like the the directors didn't really experience firsthand per se right they were kids when this stuff was going on right so um there's always dangers you know when you wade into nostalgic territory so uh, i wanted to pick something that engaged with it but maybe a little bit from a distance you know uh and so I also was kind of responding to Andy's film he picked first, so uh, I was I was kind of trying to find a connection, perhaps, and uh, found one in our music uh, theme here <laughs> for the week. So uh, music is a very powerful, uh, emotional, nostalgic thing as well, and I think because both of these films center around music... Uh, it was a natural fit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I picked... Chinese filmmaker Jia Zhangke's 2000 film Platform. Uh, this was his second film, you know, before he became uh, a 21st century favorite auteur, you know. Uh, this is early in his career. It was originally supposed to be his first film, uh, but it was much too epic to make, right? So... It ended up being his second film with a little bit of funding from Takeshi Kitano's uh, production company. And so it is a, I guess, epic, uh, realist epic of some kind uh, that looks back to the late 1970s and 1980s uh, in China, centering around the Fenyang Peasant Culture Group, who is a group of state-organized and funded musicians. Uh, and the film, of course, very pointedly opens in the wake of the Cultural Revolution, but not in Mao Zedong's China, but in Deng Xiaoping's China. And really what Jia is doing here is looking back on a transformative decade in Chinese history through the lens of these peasant musicians, basically. And uh, it follows them through a lot of crazy ellipses over basically about a decade uh, and really engages with kind of like the dead time aspect of life, you know, and, and not necessarily remembering big dramatic moments, uh, some, but also just a lot of hanging out, a lot of traveling around, a lot of looking, uh, and the landscape features very prominently here, as do, uh, you know, the little cities out here in rural China. And we'll get into it, but that's a big aspect of it is, right, the fact that he's from the country, you know. Uh, I was laughing my ass off because I was looking up an old Rosenbaum uh, review of this, and he calls Jia a... Uh, hick avant-gardist. And I was like, that's fucking hilarious, maybe offensive, but also kind of accurate, right? Because he is from the country, uh, and he is, in his own way, kind of an avant-garde filmmaker. I think Josh and Co. would love that. I think he would love being referred to as that. <laughs> so there's that aspect. And anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a lot to take in. It's a long movie. It's like two and a half hours. Uh, and it takes its time, uh, and I love it. So I was happy to happy to bring it, happy to remember it, and uh, remember that that transformative decade together. <laughs> yeah, it was funny when I saw that it was two and a half hours. I was like, wow, I really don't remember this movie 
being that long. And then sitting and watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't remember it being that long because it's so fucking good and it doesn't feel like it's two and a half hours. Well, there's not a lot of shots either. Yeah, there's there's also that. Uh, But it's a film that takes its time, but so confidently that you sort of just move with it, you know. But yeah, so similarly, Andy, your film also engages with a large period of time goes for beyond a decade. Um, So tell us a little bit about what you selected. Yeah. Uh, when you when you gave us the prompt, I, I settled on my movie very quickly. Sometimes it, it takes me a few days. I really struggle, but this time around, I I, I knew exactly what I what I wanted to pick. Um, and you know, based on the way you had kind of pitched the the subject to me, I was I was like, okay, you know, a uh, nostalgia for something that I never experienced, but that on a certain level, like almost wish I did. I grew up. Uh, as a child with a father that was, you know, a, a huge musical uh, curator for me. And I grew up listening to a lot of the music that that is featured in in the film that I chose. I grew up, you know, at a very early age listening to uh, the Four Tops, the Temptations, the Supremes, uh, these great soul and R&B groups of you know, the 60s, 70s, and well, you know, beyond, I suppose. Um, one of whom particularly for me was uh, very, very important was uh, Sam Cooke. You know, my dad got me into Sam Cooke at a, at a very early age. And, and I can remember vividly listening to his album, uh, Sam Cooke Live at the Harlem Square Club. And for me, when I like listened to that album, you know, the biggest thing is is not just necessarily like the greatness of Sam Cooke because that's certainly well on display, but but when you listen to that album, it's the sound of the room, it's the people that that you know join in, just how how wild the crowd is going, how into it they are, and and you can hear a lot of the kind of just ambient noise of that that room. It sounds so intimate, and for me, like that's always been the thing when I listen to that is thinking. Holy fuck, I wish I could have been in that room to see something like that and hear something like that. So naturally, I, I, I go to a film that invokes that time period and that, that sense of awe with great musical talent. Uh, and that film is Robert Townsend's 1991 uh, masterpiece, The Five Heartbeats. This is a biopic, really, of a, of a, of a fictional soul and R&B group in the mold of The Temptations and The Four Tops. Uh, five young men who come together to form a group in 1965. And then we get the, 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 the rags-to-riches-to-rags-to-riches story of of their journey through uh, a huge, as you said, Ryan, sort of cross-section of, of American musical history, um, a very important and very influential period of musical history. Uh, it's also kind of a musical. I mean, there's just great songs in it, and, and that's what, what I certainly always come back to. I, I think about this movie a lot because of how great the music is and um, yeah it just fills me with 
with that feeling you've you've laid out for us, you know. And I I look at this period and I look at this music and and uh, it just it just makes me long for it uh, so much. And um, I think it's a beautiful film. It's a funny film. It's a heartbreaking film at times. It's got some really great performances. And I think it really is, you know, I know sometimes we throw this around and get kind of hyperbolic about it, but to me, in my mind, this truly is a very, very underrated gem that I think is is largely forgotten 20 years later. And so for me, I kind of have like nostalgia for the subject matter, but I also have nostalgia for the film and seeing it when I was young. And, uh, and so I thought it was a perfect choice. Uh, to bring in here to the table. So that's the film that I chose. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I think at a surface level, one of the ways both of these films engage with nostalgia, just naturally being period pieces and trying to evoke a culture, right, comes across through media and um, also the the tactile elements, such as clothes. So you have so much music in both of these films, the set dressing and the costume design, much more obviously loud and colorful in the five heartbeats in terms of it almost feels like everything they're wearing has a direct relationship to the way the rooms themselves are designed right there are so many times where their outfits match the colors of chairs they're sitting in like whether it's like a big booth at a diner or just like other wallpaper and decoration and things like that obviously platform not super colorful. It's mainly just like a ton of bricks everywhere. But the <laughs> the the actual members of the of the of the troop in platform right go through a variety of outfit changes. And so there's like there's that surface level element of nostalgia in both. But I also think that both of them are nostalgic for different things and are engaging with nostalgia in that way to reveal maybe oh it's not just this music that we're nostalgic for, but maybe in the case of Platform, it's we're nostalgic just for the act of living, right? It's not about those big moments, about the day-to-day. It's about being together and how it felt to be together, both feeling love and longing for each other. And it's all just like a collection of non-events almost. It's like these beautiful, quiet moments, but they all feel like they have such severe importance placed on them that they don't feel like wasted scenes. There's like some sort of magical thing happening in platform that I've always struggled to sort of put my finger on exactly how it achieves what it does, but that's essentially one of the main reasons I love it. And then, yeah, with the five heartbeats, I think that because it's from the perspective of black performers and looking back at this nostalgia, they also undercut a lot of the typical things you would associate with this time period for music. There are so many films that are just like nostalgia trips for popular music in the 50s and 60s. And then this one engages with that, I think, in a much different way. So both of them, in their journeys of nostalgia, I also think undermine the idea of nostalgia in in interesting ways, or at least redefine it. You know? Yeah. Struggle is a huge part of of both of these films. Um, you know, political struggle, cultural struggle, social struggle, struggle, personal struggle. I mean, yeah, it's it's there. They are nostalgic on a certain level. Um, but I, I think you're right in that neither of these films just simply try to treat it as you know, weren't things better back when, but yeah, you know, like they're, they're films that really 
you know, they, they revel, I think, not just in the good times, but, but particularly in the tough times. And it's interesting that to me, a, a, maybe a deeper connection is, is that it's really in, in the hard moments that you find, I think the, the heart really of, of these films. And I also think that those hard moments materialize in some interesting ways in both of them while like, and this is where some of maybe some of the departure points between the two of them where the five heartbeats, a lot of those difficult moments, of course there's societal and like systemic issues that they come up against, but a lot of it is sort of tensions within the group, some infighting, and then also the, the managers and other predatory people trying to take advantage of their success and their celebrity and trying to uplift others while neglecting the rest of the group. But in platform, I, I, generally everyone's like pretty chill with each other. There's not a lot of like bumping heads. I mean, <laughs> I completely disagree. I completely disagree. I'm sorry. I got to interject here. I was just going to say that it's more like this feeling of, looking ahead to the future and hoping that they can get out of this like rut that they sometimes find themselves in rejecting their way of life and trying to get out of the countryside and then realizing that maybe together they're all still a bit lost as they soldier forward into adulthood. Well, sure. But to say that there's no tension amongst two failed romantic relationships depicted in the film between these troop members. Oh, I wasn't trying to like erase that element or of the, the movie. Or the fact that when they become a capitalist enterprise their handler is a, a pig who is totally fucking stealing from them yeah. unlike Zhu who may have been hard on them because he was an actual Maoist clearly <laughs> cared about the collective I think there is uh, you know th obviously they're not made too explicit certain things aren't made too explicit um, but I do think the film share those tensions amongst the group. I think there's a lot of tension, however underplayed in platform, in how all of these characters are adapting to the rapid change of the era. I mean, one character flees, one character rejects another character. I mean, I don't know. It's a lot of drama. It just doesn't feel like it. No, that's what I mean. It's, it's <laughs> underplayed in this. Like, that's essentially what I meant to say, that it, it, it's, yeah. it's very underplayed and then because of that, it makes you think about the machinations of a society changing, one that is founded on this mythos that Mao has set up about what China is, and as it moves closer towards consumerism and capitalism, as the film progresses, that that, that shows how a lot of those changes are happening within the group. While in Five Heartbeats, there is a lot of like, they feel as though they are major moments when everyone is butting heads and getting really hot and, you know, going at each other's throats. Well, yeah, I just think that, that maybe the simple way of, of, of putting it is that in, in the case of one film, a lot of the, the pain and struggle is, it's constantly being internalized, you know, these, these, yes. these huge, you know, if you take a macro level view of what's happening in China, you know, these, these seismic shifts in one of the most populous countries in the world, uh, you know, are, are being internalized by the, the main figures of the film, you know, that even when they, they're, they're probably going through something very painful, very confusing, people are dealing with it in a very like stoic 
way. Uh, whereas in the five heartbeats, there's just so much externalizing the drama, the, the tension between the group, you know, the, the difficulties that they have with their manager, like people are crying, they're shouting, <laughs> they're, they're rolling around on the floor, they're fighting, you know, they're punching each other. Uh, yeah, it's like one is a case of, of internalizing pain. And the other one is a, is a, is a clear case of just externalizing, wearing your emotions on, on your sleeve, I think. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, they both, I mean, they, they are remarkably similar in, in quite a few ways, you know? I mean, I think they are both about films about, you know, periods of cultural change, yeah. you know, very explicitly. Through a band's eyes. Through a band's eyes. And, and alone, that gives us so much progression in that sort of, like, macro look. But I think it's a testament to both of these films that I think the directors aren't are, are really into the the characters mm -hmm. you know as much as anything oh yeah it's also robert townsend's second feature film That's after right. a, an yes. independent you know breakout film you know hollywood shuffle which which is what got him the 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 funding to make this uh ultimately and i think that both of them when i when i reflect upon them to me in many respects they really show themselves to be like second features uh, oh yeah and upping the stakes, you know, and the scope. Yeah, the size, the scale, and I think also like the growing pains of of being uh, an up and coming director who suddenly had like a breakout hit and now has a lot of attention on them. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately both of them had a, a sort of different result for their director as well. That's a again, I think a departure between the two, <laughs> because in the case of Robert Townsend, I think you can see those growing pains and you can see the struggles and you can see a much more brutal system to be trying to pull something like this off in, you know, in in the Hollywood studio system. Uh, whereas in the case of of Josh and Coz, we said this like really then was able to launch him even further into uh, international stardom, you know, because, yeah, um, I don't know how much you, maybe you can shed some light on this, Andy, but you know, friend of the pod, Alex Sherman was telling me he watched the, the behind the scenes featurette on, uh, you know, five heartbeats. And he said that there was a, a real problem with the studio because they changed owners in the middle of the movie and lost confidence in the project. And basically were like pulling money and funds and shooting oh, days wow. from him yeah. as the film progressed. So I know for Townsend, it was like very, very hard, you know, as so many black filmmakers in Hollywood have struggled in very similar situations, you know, whereas, the opposite, of course. You know, in Platform, I read that he borrowed Shao Shen's producer. Well, that, they got along great, you know? Yeah, sure, so, yeah. <laughs> shit. That's a lot of what I heard as well. I know, you know, for Robert Townsend, you also just have to look at it, you know, from the standpoint of, I mean, he made Hollywood Shuffle for like a hundred grand. And, you know, the stories are well documented. It was like his credit cards. Like he was maxing out credit cards to get it made. And he goes from that to somehow securing 10 million from, from 20th Century Fox to make this movie. And I think that alone was probably very overwhelming for him. And you probably run into all kinds of struggles, which he sort of talked about, about like how to spend the money, where to spend the money. And then yes, as that issue developed, people starting to question the ways that he was spending the money. And I mean, he fits himself well in that legacy, as you mentioned, of of black directors who've 
who've been making a movie about, you know, black identity in America that a bunch of white executives at a certain point start scratching their heads over and going like, I don't know if I get this. But to me, what's great about this movie is that that's basically what this movie is also exploring. I mean, there's similar territory to Hollywood Shuffle here, yeah. you know, the the struggle of black artists in, you know, white ass America. The five uh, horsemen, right? Is oh, that yeah. the? Uh, oh my the, god! They feel like a, like an in living color sketch, you know, with the blonde wigs, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, but it should be. I mean, should be pointed out that the script is co-written by Keenan Ivory Wayans, and as a matter of fact, uh, Keenan and uh, his brother Damon were originally like the Wayans were were originally uh, supposed to be a huge part of this. They were going to star in it. And then uh, because they were having issues like getting it off the ground at a certain point and securing the finances, there was a sort of lull and Keenan suddenly got the opportunity to go make In Living Color, his sketch show. So also in that regard, Robert Townsend had said that his original uh, plan with Keenan Ivory Wayne's was something much more comedic than what he ended up making once Keenan Ivory Wayne's left. And I think you see that in the film in certain moments. There are moments that are a lot more goofy. Yeah. There are other moments that that emphasize like drama and character study a lot more. And that's only after Keenan Ivory Wayne's left and he actually started working with uh, the 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 group the Dells and they came on as consultants and he said these musicians uh, these guys who were parts of of this scene and and all these groups they started telling him stories and they were like dude it wasn't all fun and games like there was a lot of like tough times and he said once he got into the drama once he started hearing all this like heavy shit that these people were going through and specifically that stuff with white executives trying to sort of like remove the the blackness from what they were doing. Uh, you know, he's like, I, I just started leaning into the drama a lot more. So I, th- I think that speaks to kind of the, at times, uneven kind of quality of the, the comedy and the drama, you know, totally. Right. I mean, that definitely tracks, like just hearing both of those things, like hearing about how the production was interrupted or at least sort of kind of cast aside when the shift happened with the with the studio and then also that element of, of the weigh-ins. Because I think that while I was watching, I, th- I think it's a great film and I, but I was wowed for the first like hour or so. And I was just like, this thing is tight. This thing is unbelievable. Like how have I never encountered it before? Why doesn't everybody talk about this movie? And then I did think it kind of, it doesn't lose something, but it does almost feel slightly shapeless a little bit once it starts like evolving after that hour mark. And it like, as it's reaching that two hour, it wraps up really nicely, but I, it does have the feel of something that was like somewhat compromised by a troubled production and they did the best they could. I mean, there are some radical ellipses in five heartbeats that are worthy of Jaka, you know, like, and whether intentional or forced into it, I, I think, I think he plays it off well, you know, and what you were saying, Andy, about like Townsend talking to, you know, the musicians and getting the, you know, getting the real dope. Uh, it reminded me of a, a quote from Gia that I found in an interview he gave where he said, remembering history is no longer the exclusive right or prerogative of the government. As an ordinary intellectual, I firmly believe that our culture should be teeming with unofficial memories. Mm-hmm. 
And I was just thinking, right, the unofficial memories of these musicians, right, filtered through Townsend. And then, yes, to the studio executives who are like, these aren't the official memories, you know, (laughs) these aren't. No, you know, it wasn't like that or or whatever. 100%. And, And I think, like, to Ryan's point, you know, I think that's that's the part of the film that the the studio executives especially were 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 taking issue with you know that it starts with such a bang and it all seems so great and it's like hey wasn't all this music great and weren't these people great and weren't these groups great and then the film suddenly takes a turn to like uh yeah but it really 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 sucked too <laughs> because you had to deal with all this stuff and, you know, some people criticize the film for that material particularly, like, uh, you know, even the the stuff that's sort of in the middle of the film about like the civil rights era and, and white critics saying like, it's a bit heavy handed, you know, it feels, feels a little too on the nose and stuff like that. And it's just, yeah, again, it's this very sort of like, yeah, but this is the stuff that doesn't really get talked about, you know, certainly not enough certainly not in 1991, you know? And, and I think, yeah, both of these films in their own way uh, are, are really using the music as an entry point into uh, that territory that you've, you've described in his quotation of like unofficial memory, you know, the spaces between. I think that's what is so beautiful in both these films. Because certainly... In the five heartbeats, there is a lot more emphasis on like kind of dramatic moments, but rewatching it again, man, I find the heart of the film is in just a lot of their, their personal interactions between the shows. I mean, that's really where we get to find out like who these guys are. And, you know, particularly for me, like the, the, the real star of the show, uh, Eddie King Jr. played by Michael Wright and his whole painful ass journey uh you know yeah no it's like it's unbelievably emotional and so delicately handled all of that because the film deals with nostalgia it's very garish at times in a very loving way when it's engaging with the music but then when you have scenes like eddie and him falling apart as the film goes on it's shockingly real it almost feels purposefully tonally different than some of the other performances at times. Here I just saw this man like soaring in the clouds yeah. and look how like youthful and exuberant he was and look look where he's ended up. And it's just like I can't even imagine looking at a movie, especially this movie, and calling this movie heavy-handed, right? Like, I know that white critics all the time love to just label that with black cinema, uh, to call moments that make them uncomfortable heavy-handed, because they don't like to feel uncomfortable. Um, But in this film especially, like, particularly the scene, like, the one that I can think of that, you know, I would completely disagree with the assessment of it being heavy-handed, but I can imagine them thinking of it, is that just unbearably tragic moment when they're pulled over by police as they're like traveling in the south they're touring their their latest single and the police after they've frisked them and they have them going through all their shit tearing it up and they're leaning over around their car the cops make the claim like how do we know if you guys are singers how about you sing for us and they do and it's one of those moments that's handled so perfectly and beautifully where you feel such anguish and sorrow 
And yet hearing them all sing together, trying to help each other out to get out of that situation, there's like a brief moment of beauty in there. I got nothing but love for you, baby. Got nothing but love for you, baby. I got nothing but love for you, baby. Got nothing but love for you, baby. I got nothing but love for you, baby. Got nothing but love for you. But to even just call something like that heavy-handed is, like, so frustrating. Because I just think, like, I remember walking away thinking, like, God, like, that was God-level directing in that sequence. Well, and the way it pans across all their faces as they each individually join, you know, in harmony. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable moment. And it also comes sort of at the tail end of like a, a montage of all their success. Yeah. And I think that's again, the, you know, uh, a black filmmaker going like, yeah, we all just had fun. Now let me pop that fucking bubble because like, what do you mean heavy handed? Yeah. Like you, you call that heavy handed. That's reality. Right. Yeah. And also again, like as, as, as high as, as we can climb in an instant, you know, because of our race, because we're living in a fucking racist ass country and particularly in this film, because it's the mid sixties, you know, like uh, all of that can get taken away in an instant, just simply because of the color of our skin and because of suddenly where we are in this shitty ass fucking country. And we're just trying to bring joy into people's lives and, and look at what can happen. And it's also very, very important to point out the particular song and the particular lyric that they choose to sing to the cops, right. you know, their, their first breakout single is, uh, you know, a really like, you know, high energy song. I got nothing but love for you, baby. It's a love song. It's, it's really rousing. And they sing it in a very like downbeat, very emotional way. And they all just sing the refrain, I got nothing but love for you, baby. I got nothing but love. And that's all that they're trying to throw back out in the face of this racism. And it's really like the the civil rights movement, uh, I, I think, like wrapped up in this, as you said, this sort of like God tier level moment, you know, without a big speech, you know, without a big monologue from any of these characters, just here we are up on the hood of a car with cops pointing flashlights and guns at us. And, and we're just harmonizing together and, and trying to put out nothing but love to this world and to these people who are still treating us like criminals, like second-class citizens. But it's even the immediate follow-up to that moment that I think really puts the bow on it, which is then when they're all in the car after they've been let go by the cops— and they're just riding then in silence. And and he he gives us like a close-up on each of the men, just sort of disgusted, you know, uh, feeling completely demoralized by this moment in silence. And then Robert Townsend's character starts singing 
I think it's America the Beautiful. <laughs> he just starts singing in a really like soft, uh, you know, very sad way. Soaked in irony. Yeah, soaked in irony. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's incredible. It's it's a really great moment. And yeah, then you get some fucking fat white critic who's probably like CIA uh, <laughs> saying much don't you think (laughs) it sums it all up right there something that i was also really struck by with these films next to each other was of course obviously the the radically different approaches they both have to shooting a scene um, and thinking about a time like the 90s when there was such diversity in black filmmaking on a major studio level when they had budgets to make films like this it's always so shocking encountering something like the five heartbeats and thinking about it's still hard to get a black filmmaker to be able to make a passion project like this that they want to instead of being maybe relegated into the machine of making a Marvel film. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, this film is just the design of it is unbelievable. And just the way the camera's always moving. It's a, such a clean, professional looking Hollywood film. And then you have platform, which I think there's maybe only a single close-up in platform, and when that happened, I like honestly was shocked <laughs> because the film at that point had probably established for over an hour that everything was going to take place in these like long, wide shots that very gracefully and slowly pan or move only if necessary. So the moment there was an insert. It felt like the rug was pulled out from under me. And then Jashunka never does it again. <laughs> There's like <laughs> never a close-up from that point onwards. Um, but these two films, as much as they do share in common, radically different approaches to storytelling and form. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's a it's a good point. I, I, I think we've, you know, mentioned it before, maybe even on this podcast. But yeah, you know, part of, for me, like, you know, my love for the, for the five heartbeats is just because I, I look at it as the kind of film that just, yeah, as you, as you sort of put it, Ryan would never get made anymore. I mean, they just wouldn't make a movie like this anymore. It's like when we recently, uh, when we watched, uh, how Stella got her groove back at the music box and you just sit there and you just look at that, you know, like this $40 million epic about black women on vacation, you know, it's like, these movies and and to look the way they do and to sound the way they do and to have the talent involved that they do it's like yeah they just they 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 would not get funded not in this fucking hollywood not in this media landscape or if they did somehow get funded and made they'd be like you know exiled into some very sort of niche place you know but that these movies were were being made at a time when you know, the goal here was to make this a wide release film, to let everyone see this and, right. and for everyone to sort of take part in it. And it's funny that the film opens with, uh, The Five Heartbeats does with this, you know, it opens in the present day and, and the, the the sort of like bookend of the film is is Robert Townsend, who, who plays... Uh, Donald Duck Matthews, the 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 guy who sort of writes all the music for the group, kind of the the founder of the group on a certain level, you know, as a a, a man in his you know midlife, I'm assuming he's probably in his fifties or something like that when the film opens. You could see like gray in his hair, even though Robert Townsend was right. very young. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's you know this this older man, and he finds uh, in his mail uh, uh, an issue of Rolling Stone that was delivered, and it. 
it 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 says on the cover, you know, where are they now? And we see a picture of his group, the Five Heartbeats, and that's going to be our entry. Like, where are they now? You know, we see him, and then he he takes us into his memory palace, into the past, and that that phrase, like, where are they now? Like, I think about that when I look at just Robert Townsend sitting there, you know, as a, (laughs) as a filmmaker, you know, in his movie, it's like, where are they now? What the fuck happened? Where'd he go? You know, I mean, you know, he's still like working technically and doing stuff, but just, you know, where is this kind of, of, uh, filmmaking in this day and age? You know, know, the opening reminded me of a film that we've talked about on the podcast, speaking of being nostalgic for for films from our old episodes. But uh, this film opens identical to Stormy Weather, Mm -hmm. in which, you know, Bill Robinson gets like the the invite of being like, we're celebrating, you know, or whatever, you know, where are they now, (laughs) basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then it flashes back, you know, to to. All that, you know, yeah. all that musical goodness. Right. And, I mean, it's 100% like in Robert Townsend's mind, that film particularly, uh, because it's it's beyond even the opening. It's, it's basically like the same formula, right? Because then we go through this tapestry of this passage of time through black performers, you know, at that point, like the first half of the 20th century. And this is almost like the unofficial sequel where it's the second half. And I don't know if you guys Uh, (laughs) uh, noticed an even more direct connection between the two films, but you know, there's this great character uh, for our listeners anyway, then uh, who shows up to help the band as they're, as they're growing and as they're refining. And uh, he's brought in to help them with their choreography. And he's this, this gruff character, Sergeant Ernest Johnson. And he's played by Harold Nicholas, returning champion Harold Nicholas of the great dancing duo, the Nicholas Brothers, featured very prominently in Stormy Weather. And God bless Robert Townsend for putting Harold Nicholas in here to see that then range, right? He's not just a dancer because he's a huge part of like comic relief throughout the film. And he's just so, so fucking good. And he busts movie. a move. And he does indeed also bust a move and show that he does. Too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, I was like having, yeah, just thinking about him dancing in 1943 and then thinking about him dancing in 1991. I was just like this guy. Yeah. Quite literally a, a hold my cane moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah, it is a very funny moment. Cause he's introduced to the band from Jimmy. There's very kind of like desperate, but sweet manager. And he's like, Here's my buddy from the war, Sarge, you know, and he appears to be hungover or drunk. He's like burping and he's got this <laughs> yeah. cane and and the heartbeats are like this fucking guy, you know, and, and particularly Dresser, uh, who's like the bass singer of the group and the choreographer of the group takes uh, exception to this. What's this tiny little old man? You know, what does this guy know about choreography? And then, yeah, he you know, tosses his cane aside and, and just like starts going nuts. In this, yeah, move. going nuts in this living room. Nicholas Brothers style. Just as I thought. That ain't shit. Hold my cane. Hold my cane. Now pay attention. And you might learn something.
all right, all right, I guess we can learn from you. And right, what's amazing, too, is like right after that, we get a black and white photo montage, the passing of time as they're learning choreography uh, from Sarge. And it reminded me of Kukor's uh, A Star is Born that has all these like photographic interludes. Uh, And I was, you know, kind of sad that he didn't do it a couple more times because I just like really liked the vibe of that, that sequence of this kind of like sound scape that we're hearing and then these photographs that we're seeing uh it's awesome and then yeah he just like hangs out the rest of the movie <laughs> yeah he's just like their 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 bud then you know right yeah i do t- i did also really love those black and white images i also like when we got ebony the magazine like fake covers um of different editions like and jet engaging with like older yeah older media that way mm-hmm. i thought was really inspired um, cause it just, it all looks so authentic and it looks so nice. I did yeah. love too that the, when he does show up and you know, he's like, show me what you can do. That exact same scene sort of happens near the end of platform as well. Sort of a superficial connection, but when they're shopping around and they've got those two women and there's like these guys smoking and they say like, okay, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, show us, show us what you can do. And they do like a silent dance, you know, to there's no music playing, which is always like a funny thing to watch. Like performers just like showing off off their physical skill without like the swell of a backing track yeah that scene of course has the punchline then of them being like yeah we're actually not the guy you're looking for he's on break right now so you're gonna have to go to another room yeah. but thanks for the show oh yeah that's a great great comedic moment uh in in platform i love it <laughs> yeah because we should say you know like the five heartbeats has one of the most electrifying openings in, in any movie of this kind, you know? I mean, it's, it's in my heart of hearts, one of the most, like, just wham, bam, like, welcome to the movie openings. That whole opening sequence where we're first introduced to what perhaps is their very first performance as a group together. And it's, like, messy, and it's <laughs> the choreography's all over the place. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing. But goddamn, the the spirit, the, the passion as they perform on stage is when that manager guy kind of sees, hey, these guys are, you know, they're kind of all over the place, but there is definitely something here. And the way that that pulls you into the film, that that sucks you into the film with such a great opening number. I think, Ryan, that speaks to, to what you said earlier about how the film kind of feels lopsided on a certain level because the five heartbeats starts like fast. It starts hard. It starts musical. Uh, I mean, it's just in your face. You're wrapped up in it. You're loving the, the songs and there's a bunch of great songs in like the first 45 minutes of the movie and there's comedy and yes, Harold Nicholas tap dancing all over mm-hmm. the place. And, and really then the second half of the film is just more of like the personal drama and, and you know, everything kind of falling apart. And I think like it's, it's like the greatest strength of the film and almost it's like greatest weakness is that it's just so dynamic as they're forming and as they're developing as a group and, and you know, we're, we're really into it and we're loving the music. And then, you know, as it goes on, you're just kind of like, 
boy, I, re- I really wish they'd just have another like big <laughs> number right now. Yeah, give yeah. me one more song. Yeah, for sure. I think that that uneven quality though is one of the things I like so much about it. I mean, we all, the three of us, love imperfect objects, obviously, and I think that that sometimes is what gives films so much character. But I think it's got to be part of the design too, because especially that beginning and it comes in so hot and it does something that so many films that are dealing with nostalgia do where things all sort of magically work out and coalesce because members of the five heartbeats are late and they think we're going to have to go on stage without them. We're going to have to do the music ourselves. And one of them was at like a big poker game that like turned into a bust or whatever. It all went bad and he jumps out a, a window. He shatters glass as he's sprinting to the stage you know and then it's like yeah at at the the, the very last moment just before one of them thinks they're about to lead the band and and sing in place of another he slides onto stage and keeps singing right and he's like just in time he's arrived and it's that perfectness of a moment like that feels like traditional nostalgia the way you'd look back on something and be like and everything just lined up and then he came out of nowhere right on cue you know (laughs) oh yeah exactly and then the second half of the film is that quality is absent yeah and i think purposefully so and then it's reflecting of course naturally on the way we see the past and the way that we engage with the past and then sort of find ourselves lost in the present at times because of that i feel like both films you know, show these kinds of like implosions of these musical groups and on a certain level and for very different reasons, a kind of like spiritual and moral decline that comes with success or comes with, you know, consumer capitalism in China or whatever. I think both films do a, do a wonderful job of like, yeah, you ever been in a band before? You form. It's exciting. You write material. You perform it. Maybe some people like it. Uh, but usually, and even if you obtain success, like it's all going to fall apart, you know? Mm-hmm. And any story of any band or musical troupe or whatever is going to just be a bummer in the end because of everything that surrounds that lifestyle, that experience. Uh, And I think, again, yeah, we see, you know, characters, you know, falling apart uh, in in both films, you know? I mean, for me, as we've been describing, like, the first half of The Five Heartbeats, you know, really specifically, like, Ryan, trying to address your prompt. You know, for me, like, you ask, like, nostalgia for something that you... You, you haven't experienced, you know? And so, like, I, I, I have a whole selection of the things that I think are all in the first half <laughs> of the five heartbeats that are, like, you know, when I watch this movie, what am I nostalgic for? And it's, like, all in this film, you know, especially as we're in this period of, like, the mid-late 60s, you know? Wearing suits, even when you're just hanging with the boys, going to to soul and R&B clubs, you know, these smoky clubs, everyone's smoking, everyone's going wild, people are just like losing it over these talented live bands. Masculinity being measured by your ability to harmonize with at least four other men. Uh, you know, being coached, as we mentioned, by by World War II vets known as Sarge. You know, just having a figure like that in your life, sure. Sarge, you know? <laughs> Uh, cruising in cars 17 feet long down streets and those cars only costing you $1,500 or whatever, you know? Less. Going to, yeah, 
go into card games where it's actually legal to shoot a man who you catch cheating, you know? This time that I never got to experience that is like fully on display in the opening of this film, you know? It's just so goddamn fucking beautiful, you know? And then, yeah, once like 68 happens, it's all fucking downhill, you know? It's all going to shit. You know? Yeah, similarly, uh, I didn't prepare a list, but I'm just going to improvise here uh, and, and suggest maybe a few of the uh, things I'm nostalgic for in relation to platform. Like you mentioned, yeah, attempts at co- communism, uh, number one. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that platform does that really, really resonates with me is the its relationship the characters have to media. Uh, and the act of discovery and the like, the active pursuit of uh, things mm. beyond your world, you know, I think that really hits for me. And in particular, in the case of Platform, you know, the, the big moment in the film, maybe the high moment in the film is when Zhang, one of the troop members, comes back from going to like... Uh, you know, another province in the South and he comes back with a boom box and they turn it on the radio uh, and Genghis Khan, the famous German Eurovision song yeah. or whatever. But in this case, it's the cover done by George Tam. So it's right. in Mandarin, which yes. is very fun too. Exactly. So <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, like they, they discovered German, a cover of German disco. Yeah. Uh, and there's just like a quick scene of them all just dancing like idiots like having the time of their life hearing uh this you know something they never heard before and they could use sarge's choreography for sure oh my god they're all over the place (laughs) they are they are all over the place yeah it is such an endearing moment to me of like yeah youthful uh you know goofy shit you know Especially because there's like Zhao Tao just sitting in the backs, beaming and just like loving everybody and watching all of her friends have such a good time. Ah, just such a nice, yeah, a very nice scene. And then that feeling too is definitely invoked whenever they go see a film. There's yes. a moment where they see a film from India. I think it's Awara. That's what I thought too. Yeah, yeah, I believe Indian films were the first films they could get. You know, like once they started opening up the culture stuff, like they got Indian films and those were like some of them were approved or whatever. Um, Interesting. And I love too. you know, Zhao Tao plays Yin and her father is like this authoritarian like railway (laughs) rail station worker. uh, And he specifically castigates them like 
watching foreign films oh, is yeah. bad for you. You know, right. he like he calls them out on their bullshit because <laughs> oh, yeah. he's this like, you know, old school kind of hard line uh, kind of guy. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a few people like as he's explaining this to it's like his daughter. Right. Uh, there's like a few young men who are clearly in trouble for something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Being like arrested in the background, like put up against the wall in yeah. the background under a portrait of Stalin and Lenin. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that too also, I guess, made me feel nostalgic for a time I haven't experienced, and that's when cinema was seen as so powerful and important and ideologically dangerous by yeah. certain countries that the act of watching a film from another country felt like an act that could be seen as rebellious, or at least that it truly meant something, especially now in a time when fucking movies don't mean anything anymore. Culturally, yeah. I love too when they're all watching at a certain point when they're touring throughout the 80s. They're watching this like very basic like sex uh, like animation, uh, and there's just like a whole group of people just like watching this thing because it's like new and weird or whatever, you know. So uh, I love that act of discovery, and I'm also nostalgic for uh, being pulled halfway across China uh, in a flatbed with a tractor and all of your homies singing songs in the back and sometimes changing the lyrics of the songs uh, to be more offensive to uh, your Maoist leader, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, and again, just like like both films really, you know, Anyone who's been in theater or been in a band or made a film or whatever, done any sort of like group creative activity like that, I think, uh, in both films, just hanging out, you know, hanging out with the crew. Downtime, hard time, good time, you know. Yeah, and I think the, the films are both, uh, that is, again, another like point of, I think, um, connection between the films is that, you know, they both look at the particular periods of you know their different i guess you know eras in in these films you know these these two particular periods and and finding in that camaraderie like you know something very specific to that point right that that struggle of that particular moment right cuz yeah there's so many movies about bands and and creatives and stuff like that but what i really like about these films is that they're both rooted in times in which you know, uh, there is a lot of like hardship, but they're both finding in that hardship, this sense of, of brotherhood, of sisterhood, of, of comradeship, you know? And I think that's as the film developed in the case of platform where I really started to go like, okay, I, I see it a little bit. And I think I've seen it in other films of Josh and cuz where in the beginning, or I guess the the earlier portion of the film uh, you mentioned when they're like manager is sitting there and, and sort of like chastising them about changing the lyrics and getting a little, getting a little, you know, goofy with the, the ideology here, right. The, the political ideology and stuff like that. Ja compares that period to contemporary China, modern China and goes like, yeah, we were kind of backwards and yeah, like, you know, clearly we've made progress, but at what cost to our souls, at what cost to our fellow citizens, you know, our comrades that, that we, we at one point had a collective 
struggle with, we had collective hardship with. And now I was, as I was watching Platform this time, looking at Touch of Sin as like the unofficial sequel. I mean, I guess almost every movie he made is kind of an unofficial sequel to this. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I was really thinking <laughs> of A Touch of Sin this time because like in A Touch of Sin, we open with that character that is a kind of like old school communist seeing contemporary China and how it's like destroyed the village, destroyed the, the, the camaraderie over like certain people's kind of personal gain and personal glorification, you know? And like, I feel like that's really like at the heart of this film, it's the same thing. You know, it's like, it's easy for us to look and be like, look at these dumb communists talking about politics in their, in their, in their music. Right. And it's like, yeah, but what's the alternative, <laughs> you know, like where we are now. And it sucks. Like, as you said, now nothing means anything other than some suits in a room making some money, you know, yeah. everything's just content now. You know, that's the difference of <laughs> what films meant in, in platform versus what they mean today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a very, uh, you want to talk about a heavy handed moment in platform. Uh, you could accuse it of being right. But early on in the film, you know, really the, the I guess the heart and soul of the film is Kui. Uh, who is uh, played by Wang Hongwei, who's in a bunch of Jia films. And he says to his mother, you know, the party will take care of me, you know, uh, because he is so, uh, and he is, you know, he is this kind of rebellious guy, but he still is like, yeah, I believe I'm a cultural worker. I believe in that, you know? Uh, and he does feel like he will be, supported, you know, by the state going forward. And there's like a security in that and a happiness in that. Like, this is great. Like we're a state funded music troupe. Like we travel around, we perform music. Like this is, this is pretty good, you know? Uh, and I think there's certainly a case to be made, right? That, yeah, like what is lost uh, in that transformation? And I think, uh, again, we should, you know, refer to the, the title of the film, which has like multiple meanings, uh, but it's called Platform because of a, a famous song, Railway Platform, uh, which is, of course, listened to in the film at a certain point. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, it's that sort of, you know, the modernization of China. None of these characters have, have been on a train. Yeah. <laughs> and then you think about, right, China, 90s, 2000s, like it's all trains. Right. And it is this migrant sort of quasi capitalist kind of whatever thing going transitory thing going on. Right. And so it is going from, yeah, here's these people in this town. Right. Fenyang, like they all know each other. They've all lived here. And now, right, people are going to start migrating and shifting around and going to college, right, when the schools open back up and, and stuff like that. And, you know, they're even, they're, they're taken to task uh, for their acting, as you referred to, Andy, because, well, he's never been on a train, so how can he act like he's on a train on stage, you <laughs> right, know? Yeah. Um, and there's, there, there is that commentary where, right, you know, the, the sort of Deng Xiaoping, like, open-door policy era uh, is going to lead to all this kinds of stuff. And it's up to you, the viewer, to make of what you will of this change. You know, he's not hitting us over the head uh, with anything in this film. And I do think it's interesting 
that you're right. Like Touch of Sin is just he really does just kind of riff on, you know, his major theme, which is like the the transformation of China. That's like really what he's showing you in all of his movies in one way or another. And what it's done to the people. Right. More than anything. Yeah, like how it feels, you know? And I think that that's one of the great successes of Platform because the film is rather oblique at times because, as I mentioned, some of the scenes feel like non-events, but they don't feel like non-events emotionally. And I think that there's a little bit of nostalgia there, and that's like part of where that power comes from. But so many of these scenes, like the the thing I walk away from it after having seen this film is, even if I'm like lost on some of the specifics, especially politically in terms of like when the timeline of this film is occurring, because again, there are those ellipses, what's very clear is how it felt for them, you know, way out there in their province, Mm -hmm. both because of how warm and lived in all these performances feel, but then also the way he's framing these sequences and how long he lets them play out. They all feel so natural because of that. It never feels like he's distracting you. Like I said, you know, there's no inserts or close-ups. He's not telling you what to look at and how to feel necessarily that specifically, but more because of the control of his mise-en-scene and the way his camera elegantly like moves through these rooms, we're allowed to absorb the textures of everything that's going on, what everybody's doing, whether they're sitting with parents who are preparing meals for each other, or even then as they sit around and rehearse, and then the, the way people busy themselves in this large frame. Lots of smoking. Lots of smoking. Mm-hmm. But then, and then of course, just them hanging out and all of this combines to create this beautiful roadmap of yeah what it might have felt like to go through that transition and how you could end up feeling lost at the end of that there's like something going on in the film where you know the the past and the future are like overlapping in the present of this film because a lot of the soundscape of this movie is like yeah you hear these kind of like old kind of like communist PA messages that like in the context of what we're seeing seem like from another universe. But even beyond that, like again, the idea that they're in the provinces, you know, the real change is happening in the cities. It's kind of abstract to them, right? And like, you know, you're in for it in the beginning of the movie when the characters get bell bottoms that one of their (laughs) one of their aunts brought back you know from abroad or whatever uh and it's like yeah you know the film is is as much about showing you a guy wearing bell bottoms standing next to an ancient wall like that's what the film is about well and and i I was even gonna say standing next to like an ancient communist worker who's like yeah also that can you squat in those things yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he does, he like kind of barely can like get down. The pants are so tight around his thighs, you know. He does like this really like kind of half-assed squat, you know. And the guy's just like shaking his head, like, you know, you guys get a little bit of freedom, and you just start acting. I think he says like you get a little bit of leeway, and you start acting like capitalists in your stupid pants. Like, yeah, what utility? To the, yeah, you can't labor in those pants. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no range of motion in those dumb pants, you know, and that you know like. Like that generational gap is, I think, like where you see a lot of Josh and Co's uh, humor, and it's it's in a lot of his films, and it's it's really here. I think for someone who you know doesn't understand this, like to me, 
Josh Unka is a is a very very funny guy. It's just that his humor is so deadpan. It is six feet un- buried under the ground. It's so deadpan, and that's the kind of humor that I really do appreciate. You know, not not like dumb obvious punchlines, but just like a joke in someone's silence. You know, or a joke in absolutely a, in a in a misunderstanding. A joke in two people in as you kind of put it like in like just two different generations two different worlds really you know you mentioned the 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 critique that the one guy gets at the beginning of like you know the train and there's a hilarious bit after that i loved where you know he's he's telling the guy like you know your train noise in our in our big train number it's it's shit it's like beyond zero i think is what he says it's like it's garbage and he's like of course well yeah i've like never been on a train and the guy's like what about movies about trains and he's like you've never seen the trainman's son or the railway partisans <laughs> like, cracking up. It's like old chinese communist propaganda films probably from like the 50s or something and this kid's like no man the railway partisans you know like oh god man thinking about some of those yeah those moments of comedy that are buried you know well below six feet under as as, as you were saying and i think one of my favorite examples of this, which is events that feel like nothing's happening, and yet when you put them all together, it feels as though like a whole world has been created between these two characters, where the, all the the gang is gathered and they're about to have a meal, and they see a man in the background with like a bucket and a ladle, uh, just with some water, and they're like, oh great, we can like go wash our hands. So they walk over to him, and he just you know pours the water on their hands, and they wash up. Kui goes up to this man who's like helping everyone wash their hands, and he recognizes him and realizes like oh my god you're my cousin and it kind of reminded me of that scene in dumb and dumber when jim carrey comes out and she's like oh big gulps huh oh great well see you later and <laughs> because he tries to like reconnect with uh, his cousin and there's like nothing really offered there and you know he, he asks a few questions but it's sort of a dead end and he keeps returning progressively throughout the film and again there are these small moments where he's like not giving a lot like whether they're even just squatting and sharing a smoke and like looking at the landscape he and th- when he does speak it's always like something really poetic like oh like the city's way out there it, it's, it's a lot farther than it looks but at night you can see the lights you know mm-hmm. um but then my favorite shot in the whole film is when his cousin is is walking down the road and they're like pulling up behind him on their tractor van thing that they have that they drive around the countryside with and they offer him a ride. His cousin's like, no, 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 no. It's not that far. I, I, I got it. It seems like he's ascending directly, like a ninety, like vertically to the top of the frame as he goes to the right and takes the mountain path instead of continuing on the road with the gang, you know? And it's like, there goes that man. And they sit there for a while and then they eventually decide like, okay, like, let's, let's go. And it's just those small little things that when you add them all up, it's just such a beautiful portrait of this person's relationship to his cousin and then also the alienation that person feels and his struggle to communicate with everyone. Well, and it, it speaks to the, the, the really, really multifaceted approach that Jajanka takes to class in China. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I would say the world, uh, but you know, like Marsh, you pointed out already that, you know, while you'll have people like Kui and 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 Zhang saying like, "Well, I've never been on a train before," and like bell bottoms, they got bell bottoms in the big city, and they're they, they're they're they are 
you know, a step below the people who live in the big city, then yes, when Kui goes and meets his cousin, as provincial as Kui thinks he is compared to someone from Beijing or whatever, his cousin, like like that difficulty you're talking about in connecting, it's like it, it works two ways, right? Because his cousin is kind of like ashamed looking at Kui because he's like, I don't even know how to read. I'm look, I'm the guy that's just holding the water bucket for you folks to wash your hands in while you right. eat dinner. I'm below you on this totem pole. And then even further as he develops that, where we ultimately see, you know, uh, a very charged word in this case, but like the fate that Kui's cousin is facing in the, in the, the modernization of China, where he's basically, you know, his sister's yes, sent off to college, but he is, He's quite literally like has his life signed away to a coal mining company in a an absolutely to me like soul shattering scene. My favorite scene in the movie is is that moment when when like Kui accompanies his cousin to the coal mine, you know, and he's 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 got to go like meet with the guys who own it and sign his contract, you know, and all these guys are they're signing with their thumbprint because they, they probably don't even know how to write. And then he's right. handed his contract and he's like, I don't know how to read. So he, he takes it back to Kui, you know, and, and Ja, of course, he's not going to cut there. He's just going to pan the camera slowly back and forth as this poor man is like facing this, this devastating moment in his life. And when Kui is reading the fucking contract to him, it is the most bleak and and yeah just just horrifying uh <laughs> horrifying document i think i wrote it down with like the first article of the contract from the coal mine is something like one life and death depend on fate anything that happens to you in this mine is like basically your own fucking fault, right? It's no one's fault. It's certainly not the mining company's fault. And the contract just basically like lays out for him, like, you're done. We own you. Your life means shit to us. You're going to work, live, and die in this coal mine. That's it. That's your lot in life. And for all that, you're going to get, you know, 10 yuan a day or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why at the end of it, his cousin, you know, like... What does he say to Kui? Like, doesn't he say something like, never show your face here again? Like, never come back here again? Doesn't he tell him, like, you, you leave and you, like, never come no, back? No, he says here. he doesn't want his sister to ever come back. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, oh. he, gives, very, him, he yeah. gives him his, he gives him all the money he has. And he just goes, like, give this to her. Don't ever, so like, don't ever let her come back here. Right. You know, like, it, totally resigned to his. He knows what he's facing. Yes, he may not be able to read, but you, like you said, Ryan, he's got this like very kind of philosophical, very poetic way of looking at life. And this man who can't read faces that coal mine and knows exactly like what his lot is, you know, and it is uh, not good. It's basically a death sentence for him in this coal mine. Yeah, that image of him ascending the hill is a moment that's so beautiful, but also like has just a little bit of comedy there of them, you know, oh, can we get a ride? And he's like, nah, and he just like climbs up. But it, yeah, it is just, it's tragic seeing him leave the film um, up to this, you know, this unknown climbing up the hill. And like, we don't know what's going to happen to this guy, but we do know what's going to happen to this guy. Not good. I think, you know, uh, we can talk about 
Obviously, you know, one of the, the things the films have in common is their elements of love and heartbreak, you know. Uh, and in the case of Platform, there are, you know, there's basically four main characters of this film. There's many characters in this film, but it really revolves around two couples. So there's Kui and Yin, which is Zhao Tao and Wang Hongwei. And then there's Zhang and Zhang, or as I was writing in my notes, Z and Z, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> and they're and they're also a couple. Uh, and well, Zhang and Zhang uh, are a couple, and Kui and Yin are are almost but not a couple, and then definitely not a couple. Yeah. Will they? Won't they? They won't. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, it, it is like yeah with you know really some of the most emotional stuff i find is their relationship right because they're in the troop together they're very good friends uh and you know at a certain point Kui gets gets word that she's gonna have an arranged marriage with a dentist uh and he yeah. gets really like worked <laughs> up about this and and essentially you know confronts her in in one of the greatest shots in the film which is he's like following her on his bike and then they get off and and it's just this you know kind of like brick wall situation but there's like an entrance behind one of the walls and then they keep like disappearing and reappearing as they're having this conversation that goes on for a very long time God, yeah and he's basically like I want to be your fiance. And she like kind of freaks out because she's like, what? Like I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about us. Like he was misreading, you know, the whole situation or was he, you know, but at that moment he is, he's rejected by her uh, and he's rejected by her again, you know, in these just like, unbelievably heartbreaking moments. Uh, And that relationship and its absence, uh, you know, really defines, I think, yeah, like the emotional heart of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That shot is unbelievable when they are like walking behind that wall and we only ever see one of them at a time. It feels like a very uniquely Zhashenko way of solving a problem within the own framework of rules he has set for himself. So specifically that scene traditionally would have just been addressed with close-ups of both of them to isolate their reactions and what they're trying to say. Because again, so much of this is played out in extreme wide shots where they're pretty small in the frame, all things considered. And here at this moment when it is building to somewhat of a crescendo, when it almost necessitates close-ups are only focusing on one of them at a time as they share things, his solution to that, still keeping it a wide shot, is to have them enter and exit the frame from something that's blocking our perspective of them. So it's not even that they're like leaving the left or right of the frame. They keep disappearing within the middle of it. To me, it almost felt like he's like, okay, I have these rules for how my film is designed. This is the only way I'm going to be able to isolate them. Shit's so good. (laughs) (coughs) Yeah, shit's so good, dude. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, similarly, there are, uh, you know, love and heartbreak elements of the five heartbeats and that, you know, specifically, right, focuses around, I guess, the yeah, like the the Duck and JT brother uh, relationship. I mean, JT, we should say, is played by Leon, the legend himself. 
the handsome, handsomest man alive. Uh, and he's JT, the ladies' man, and really kind of like a sex addict of some kind. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that becomes, of course, a, a major problem, you know, within their, their success, within the context of their success, and then later in the context of his relationship with his brother, who, uh, again, we have another sordid fiance affair. Yeah, because uh, Duck. Uh, you know, Robert Townsend's character is, you know, at, from from the beginning of the film, obsessed with this girl, Tanya. And he's been going to her house and delivering her secret uh, poetry, right? He's been putting poetry in her mailbox. And, and you know, he has his own, his own way of, of trying to court her. And it's very sweet and it's very romantic. But, but yeah, JT is just... Yeah, he's the he's the sex uh, the sex fiend. He's the hot guy. He's the one that all the women want to go to bed with. And like Duck is the the nice guy, like the cute guy, the sweet guy. And that uh, tension, you know, plays out throughout the film. But all the characters have their relationship issues. You know, all the characters struggle with uh, their significant others or sex or the idea of of courting and romance. Uh, even Choir Boy. I mean, we haven't really laid out all the characters, but yeah. the Choir Boy <laughs> is, I think, the one band member we haven't mentioned. You know, he's the guy that sings. You know, on the high end of the scale, he's the one that really hits those high falsetto notes. I love how they always yell, like, go to church, go to church. And then he hits these like, insanely <laughs> high notes, you know. But, you know, his whole thing is that he's he comes from a very, you know, conservative Christian upbringing. And, and his, like, whole dramatic turn in the film is that at a certain point, you know, he's been struggling with his dad who says, you can't serve two masters. You either serve the church or... Or you serve this devil music. And he, at a certain point, is like, fine, you know, that's what you think I'm going to be. I'm going to be that. And then Choir Boy takes this wild swing where he's trying to sort of be JT. And he's like trying to take everybody's moves and bed every woman he can find. And it even leads to suspicion that Duck's fiance is having an affair with Choir Boy, right? I mean, like at a certain point, they're all just like you said before, imploding, you know, everyone in their own way is, is, is losing trust in each other is, is perhaps coveting what someone else has. And it really like rips them all apart. It seems right. Yeah. I mean, there's that great scene where later in the film, when they have a new lead singer of the band, who is very much a pretty boy who is just winning over the hearts of all the girls, the flash era when they, when, when Eddie's finally kicked (laughs) out of the band and they start the flasher of the five heartbeats. Um, But JT Leon is extremely upset and distracted by the fact that the women aren't collapsing at the sight of him right they're they're going after this you know the flash the new guy and jt's like no i am the sex god like they all need to be going after me that's my role in the band i'm the sex guy exactly um and in in that sense it's almost kind of a moment that doesn't register as totally believable just through the casting because leon is so good looking and this other guy doesn't even hold a candle to leon um by the way i mean like (laughs) I just want to point out another thing about the film that, again, like nostalgia for something I've never experienced that that there's a lot of in this film. It's just all of the 
I don't know how else to put this, uh, but like all the cucking that goes on in this movie, <laughs> featuring guys who can just like nail like these really high notes. And there's like so many scenes of like a guy looking at his like wife or girlfriend who is just like almost in orgasmic ecstasy over a man like crooning into her face uh, <laughs> and being like, God damn it. Yes, I was going to say specifically early in the film when JT like has one of those performances and there's a woman in the front row who does literally look like she's having an orgasm and losing complete control of her body. Do you know who that is? That's that's Cassie Lemons, the uh, director of Eve's Bayou and the new Harriet Tubman movie oh and a few other films. Oh my God, that's her, huh? But yeah, she, she, I don't think she had like directed anything. I mean, maybe she had done some TV work at that point. But I noticed her name in the end credits, and I was like, "Who's Cookie?" Like I didn't remember that character. And then yeah, I did a little bit of research, and I was like, "Oh my god, that was her." You know, I I, I feel like I I, I meant to. I, I didn't get a chance earlier to to interject with my own um, bit of a nostalgia. I didn't really have experience with that this film really invoked in me and and part of that is just because of my you know bad behavior when i was younger um and that's my favorite scene of the five heartbeats is when robert townsend is trying to write a song and his little sister is in the background trying to clean up their bedroom and he keeps like writing some lyrics and he gets pissed off so he crumples them up and he throws them behind himself and she's like you can't keep tossing this shit all across the room like I gotta clean this up before mom gets home but then she picks up these pieces of the the lyrics and she's like oh well, I solve your problem here all you gotta do is like combine these two together and then it's such an inspired musical set piece where it's brother and sister singing a newly created song as Robert Townsend keeps grabbing different pieces of paper and handing them to his sister who then like completes the next verse and then the next chorus um and it made me think about how when my sister had her phase of being like really into pop music and Hannah Montana and singing all the time uh, <laughs> that I was I was not as agreeable as Robert Townsend was in that scene. I You didn't I, write a hit song out of it? <laughs> I certainly didn't write a hit song out of it, but I also like did not play along. I, I, I found it very grating at when I was a moody preteen not enjoying my sister singing Hannah Montana in One Direction. So that scene invoked a past that could have been had I been uh, a nicer man. Had you been Robert Townsend's sister. <laughs> yeah. It, and I'm glad you brought that scene up because it's actually a really wild scene if you think about it in, 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 in the entire film, you know, formally speaking for me because I consider this a musical. And I, I consider this a, a musical film, but mm-hmm. but all of the music throughout the film, like the musical numbers are all diegetic. You know, it's like we get the musical numbers when when people are on stage, when they're performing or when they're listening to something on the radio or in the background. However, that scene breaks with all of the other ones because this is a non-diegetic musical number, right? It isn't just that she's singing, but suddenly like all the the instruments come in out of nowhere and like fill in... Uh, it, you know, fill in the rest of the, the, the song in the background. And it, it has always stood out to me in this movie as like, yes, a very like sweet moment, but one that, you know, for me, I'm always just kind of like, this is where I see some of for Robert Townsend. And, you know, again, having like a lot of different ideas and wanting to do a lot and having this stuff and having like this great scene on paper, but it breaks to me totally formally with, you know, the the almost like, 
Bazinian element of all the other musical numbers because it's just suddenly a, a music, suddenly like a very classical musical number in this film that's grounded all the rest of the music in like the world itself, you know? Yeah. No, I completely agree. I just also find the moment so infectious that I just completely forgive him because it's such a lovely scene, you know? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, like, for sure. You know, that's like the, the charm of this movie. Like, it gets away with stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it stands out, but I just appreciate it as a, another variety of form that's like being thrown at the wall in this movie. Again, the idea of it being a classic sophomore effort, you know, he is doing whatever he's going big and it doesn't always make sense or even work you know but like uh, again this wasn't a problem for me you know but yeah even the way that scene is lit seems artificial uh in a way yeah. you know some of the other scenes aren't perhaps so i totally felt that it was this kind of like aesthetic outlier you yeah know? Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah that's why it's so shocking because the, the front half of the film is like rather light with moments like these that sometimes feel out of place but have so much cheer in them when the film all of a sudden has like a montage of everybody doing cocaine <laughs> and things just get really dark. You know? Oh, dude, I mean like really – the the downfall of Eddie, it hits you like a Mack truck after, you know. It hits you like a garbage truck. It hits you like a garbage Whoa. truck, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but like it just, yeah, it comes it comes at you so hard after, yeah, we just saw like a, a brother and sister duet as she's like sweeping <laughs> right. up trash in the bedroom, you know? It's like <laughs> they write a hit song, as you said, you know? And then, yeah, Eddie is is suddenly like, completely falling apart and and like a testament to like michael wright's uh, talent as an actor you know who plays eddie i mean like no one falls as hard as eddie does in this film you know and and like seeing him like like at times almost feel like he is in a completely different movie i think you might have even mentioned that earlier where it's like we're watching him like just completely crumble and give in to addiction and paranoia and the way he's going at everybody. Like there's incredible moments where even like the other members of the band, like they, they just like look at him with these wide eyes, like almost in a way we were describing with platform. It's like these just people in like two different worlds, you know, as Eddie uh, starts to just, you know, distance himself from everyone and, and, and yeah, like completely go off the deep end. I think there's, you know, a fine line uh, between, you know, uh, parody and, and not when it comes to, to a fall that hard and a guy that basically, yeah, you know, just like really falls off the deep end. And, and in a movie, it's a hard thing to perform, you know, and uh, as much as I love Samuel Jackson's performance in Jungle Fever as Gator, the crack addict brother, I was thinking, watching the five heartbeats, like, this is, is so real compared to something like that, where you're like, oh, yeah, this is the brother who's like, oh, he's a crackhead now. And it's Sam Jackson hamming it up, you know, like, this, the, the notes that this film hits are, are so much more raw and dark. I mean, obviously, like the the most brutal scene of the film is after you know they've replaced him. He just shows up uh, at one of their concerts outside, and 
it is just, you know, I, I can't even so like, pathetic. I can't, yeah, I can't even get into the details. It's just like so sad. And he's wearing one of his old outfits. Yeah, one of their know, old yeah. costumes. Their old <laughs> costumes. Yeah, he like, yeah, he takes like his jacket off to show that fact. He he doesn't want uh, material help. He wants like, you know, spiritual help. Essentially, he wants to be back. He wants to be boys. back with the band, and that is like literally an impossibility. And all they can offer him is money or give us a call or whatever. He's like, I don't have a fucking house or phone, you know? He says like, do I look like the kind of guy that has a phone number? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the thing in his voice too. It's so amazing what he does with his voice. Cause of course throughout the film, right? Like he has a beautiful singing voice and here he makes it so raspy. It like has the quality of someone that has experienced so much pain. Give me off like that. I ain't coming for no handout. Damn, y'all. Y'all wouldn't even be together if it wasn't for me. Eddie, what you want to talk about? Doug. I just. I just think we should get back together again. I'm singing every day, man. I'm back, baby. Check, check it out. Dang. <laughs> it's it's a film that you know engages with roughness even before this moment, but it has such a soft touch to it. And this moment does not have a soft touch, and that's why it's so shocking and moving. Yeah, it's devastating. And I, 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 since we just kind of brought up like voices, uh, I, I, you know, for those who don't know, um, you know, when you watch this film, you're gonna hear some amazing singing from these these fine actors. But it's not really them, obviously, right? They were lip syncing, and and Robert Townsend like has talked about that. He's like, come on, like, yeah, we can all sing, but we we can't sing like that. So we got professionals. We've got like R and B singers. Some who were like famous, uh, uh, you know, members of, of groups during this era. Like some of the singers from the Dells sang some of these songs. I think the guy that sings Eddie's is the lead singer of the Dells. That's right. And, and Mm. what Robert Townsend did say though, is that he, he, Robert Townsend supervised the vocal casting for the singers who would be providing their voices. And I, I, again, you know, as many times I see this, I have to say it's amazing work in that regard because I've seen actors in movies, you know, who are lip syncing and it's so clear to me, you know, when you'll see an actor and you will be like, that's not their fucking voice, but he does such a great job of picking out the singer to match the actors, like actual speaking voices. I think he absolutely nails that. Like I, feel it like I feel it coming out of them and they do like an amazing job as well in their like lip syncing for the most part you know it's it's all it just feels so real to me you know I completely agree like I knew it wasn't them 
obviously, but I was so willing to suspend disbelief because of how perfectly cast those voices were for each respective part. And part of Eddie's downfall, we should say, uh, is tied in with the fate of their poor manager, Jimmy. Uh, and Jimmy has been, you know, shepherding the band since he saw them in the opening scene and uh, against the wishes of Eleanor, his wife, Diane Carroll, he, you know, he manages them and he does a damn good job. You know, he releases their single uh, and he shops them around to the, the majors. And as we discussed earlier, yeah, it doesn't really go great because the majors essentially want to buy the songs and give them to a to a white group. Yeah, they bring know? in They bring in a group that I swear to God, I just like I couldn't help but think was like it's fucking like Joe Biden in the group because they have the. The white guys we mentioned, the five horsemen. <laughs> Did you catch like when the guy's like, "Hey, we got soul gang," and like at a certain point, he says like like something like one of the lyrics where he's just like, "Ain't got no money, Jack." And he throws it. <laughs> like, like it's fucking, I just kept thinking, I'm like, it's Joe Biden Holy and, and the horsemen, you know? Absolutely, yeah, totally. Dude. And it's the same way that Joe Biden would be like, "I got soul," you know. Oh. Yeah. Man. But and- yeah, as you as you mentioned, Marsh, yeah, that 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 does not go well, which which I think is what you're getting at puts them in the sights, unfortunately, of Big uh, Red. A great character that also in a weird way makes me nostalgic. You know, I should put that on my list. Like just like associating with guys named Big Red, you know, <laughs> who runs this Big Red Records, this independent label, who is uh I guess saying shady is probably putting it a little lightly. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's revealed throughout the film or, you know, eventually in the film that, yeah, obviously, you know, you can tell Big Red is a shady operator, uh, wonderfully played by Hawthorne James, by the way. I'm, like, obsessed oh, yeah. with his performance in this movie. Yeah, he, would, <laughs> he would have been a great example for our It's Good to Be Bad episode in terms of villains we love. I got so excited whenever he was back on screen. I'm like, this guy's a fucking psycho. Oh, and yeah. He He's got, yeah, he's cooking the books. He's selling bootlegs of his own record company records. He's got payola scams all over the nation. Drugs. He's got drugs. And we also see him, uh, Bird from Bird and the Midnight Falcons, who we see in the opening of the film as this kind of like rival band, comes to Big Red on on the Five Heartbeats tour uh, and, and is like, yo, we need to talk about money. And, and Big Red just goes off and and beats the shit out of this guy and uh, dangles him off the balcony of the hotel. And I was thinking like, dude, is this like Suge Knight? You know? Uh, I I mean, I think, uh, you know, that story came out later or whatever, but like, I I couldn't help but think it's 1991, you know? Like, is this about Death Row Records? Like, is this Robert Townsend like saying no to gangster rap? I don't know but something to think about, you know? Oh, mm. well, definitely. Mm. You know, and, and again, it's a, it's a connection between both films because, you know, I think great period pieces are as much about the time that they're set in as they are about the time in which the film was made and the time in which we're experiencing the film, you know, obviously, you know, in the case of platform, as we've been discussing, it's, you know, it's set in, you know, starts in the late seventies and goes through the eighties. And there's, you know, this really even charged moment when I think they're singing a song about 1980 and 20 years from now where we're going to be. Right. And it's like, 
movie was made in 2000. Here we are 20 years yeah. later. And, and, and that's very pointed for Josh and Cook to be like 20 years, folks, here we are. How different, how similar, you know? And yes, this film is, is about the trials and tribulations of black artists in the civil rights era or through the civil rights era, but it's also about them still today for a guy like Robert Townsend and for other musicians, you know, those questions of being a crossover artist and these white record labels being like, yeah, but can you, can you maybe like tone down the black stuff a little bit so we can sell these records to white kids? Like, so we can really make some money. Oh my God. Yeah. When they show that alternate album cover, that's just like a family sitting at the beach. It's like a Nazi cover of like an Aryan picnic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The five heartbeats, yeah, and it's just like a, yeah, yeah, it is. You're right. That's a great. It's like a painting that Hitler would do. Like, yeah. I swear to God, yeah. And you know, again, Robert Townsend said that wasn't in his original script, but the Dells told him that story that that was their oh first album. That's what happened to them. Is like we had this album, we were really excited about it, and then they showed us the cover, and it was like a white couple at the beach or some shit like that. <laughs> and they were like, are you kidding me? And yeah, you know, there's that cynical moment where, where the, the, the lawyer is explaining, well, look, if you want to sell records, if you want to sell a lot of them, you, you gotta play this game. Well, as we learn in both films, the music marketplace is swimming with sharks, you know, and it's difficult to navigate over time because uh, in platform, of course, the uh, peasant cultural group, uh, once they are privatized, and by the way, they are like one of the first things, you know, privatized in the country. It's like, well, just, you know, the music, you know. Yeah, the cultural brigades. (laughs) Dismantle the cultural brigades, you know. And uh, they rebrand themselves in the, you know, the new capitalist era as the all-star rock and break dance electronic band. (laughs) And they are trying to keep up with the times as the 80s change. And we, we follow them, you know, in these ellipses on different spots in their tours uh and there's even one you know one of like the saddest moments i think for the troupe is when they're basically like not let into this town and then they're just performing on the side of the road as all (laughs) these trucks roll by but they're doing like it's the the two girls in the group uh you know later in the movie not the main ones from earlier uh and they're doing like this crazy (laughs) like yeah like modern club electronic like dance style on a rural country road to no audience i mean it's like again talking about humor that's the kind of like you know deadpan just like here's a wide shot of these people like dancing with sparkly outfits on next to a fucking like dirt hill somewhere yeah as a semi rolls by <laughs> yeah i mean the sound is amazing you know oh yeah uh, i even like too when they have their like their big like rock number where they're at some like you know some village or something and they're they're doing like their rock number and they're trying to go so hard they're trying to go you know like like Guns N' Roses style, like on this crowd that is just like not into it, not connected. Again, looking at them like they're from a whole another planet. And at, at one point, I think it's Quee who like tries to basically like jump into the crowd. Yeah, he assaults and, the audience like a punk rock singer. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I wrote that in my notes. Like he, he tries to kick off a thrash pit and basically just like starts a fight. You know, yeah. like no one gets what's going yeah, on. He's wearing like Reeboks and acid wash jeans and he's like pushing this like indifferent peasant audience, <laughs> like literally pushing them. Yeah. It's fucking amazing. He probably thought 
thought in his mind he would have the same effect as Leon maybe on the audience that they would rapturously, you know, participate in anything he wanted them to. But instead of the woman, you know, seething in ecstasy of orgasm, yeah, they they kick him out right away for his impression of like trying to be like the band fear, you know? Yeah. And it reminds me, you know, on the flip side uh, of these, like, you know, just like cut to new era, new look, you know, we get that in both films. Cause of course there's the moment in five heartbeats when, you know, it's 1972 all of a sudden they're wearing pink and Townsend comes out with the keytar and starts, you know, starts showing off the keytar and they all have now just little sideburns, you know, to indicate that it's the, the 70s now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That, again, that's that's the Flash era when, you know, Flash gets involved. And as you mentioned, Ryan, there's that whole bit then when JT is, of course, we learn like really upset because you know Jay, you know Flash is getting all the chicks, but he says it. He's like, I don't like this anymore. It's too flashy. It's too the musical numbers are too big. The dance numbers, is the choreography is too wild. You know, he wants to get back to that like purity. You know, but I think Townsend has fun with that. With that, that that progress of of style and form that we see again in the the, the tapestry of this this whole big slice of musical development that both films, uh, I think manage so well, you know, know, I do want to, you know, (laughs) I do want to mention, I think, uh, you know, just bring up a great scene. Andy, uh, is when, when Zhao Tao dances in her tax collector's office, you know, because I think in platform, we feel so much of Quee's longing and his heartbreak throughout the whole movie. And he gets more like nihilistic as the eighties go on and the troop in general gets more debaucherous as the eighties go on in, in, in the same way that it does for the heartbeats. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, uh, eventually, you know, we are reintroduced to yin and because when, you know, when the group went pri- privatized mode, uh, she left because her conservative father wanted her to have like a a more legitimate or serious kind of career not this cultural artist bullshit Uh, and it turns out she became a tax collector for the government and she lives this very lonely kind of life uh, where she goes into her you know big tax collector's office and waters the plants and pops on the radio and then just like dances for five minutes Uh, and it to me it's the best of you know like she dances in all his movies because she was like a dance student and a dancer before she was an actress. Uh, but it is just, yeah, this beautiful moment of music and downtime. And again, you know, obviously she misses the troupe. You know, it, it, her heartbreak is just as much. Right? She's feeling that nostalgia listening yeah. to that, that music. Exactly. And again, a point that uh, to me really like, yeah, again, can both at the core, like make the the case for, for like togetherness and for the beauty of like going through things and experiencing things with people, people around you, people that you, you care about, you know, friends and family and, and even just, I guess, like colleagues, you know, because to me, the, the, the big, like, progression i guess that that both of these films like eventually take is like how there is just such uh communal joy and pain and struggle and as both these films 
you know, uh, develop as both these, these stories advance, like everyone starts to become so siloed from one another for a whole plethora of reasons that we've been discussing, you know, but like at certain points, everyone in platform just seems isolated and cut off from Mm -hmm. each other, especially from where they started, you know, everyone on the bus together, everybody sitting around the table, discussing lyrics, you know, discussing numbers, practicing together, rehearsing together, same thing with the heartbeats, you know, they're, they're going through all these things together. And then like, where is everybody when they're, you know, when the world has, has, yeah, corrupted, I guess, all of them, they're all, they're all cut off. They're all removed from each other. The heartbeats in some cases, like by the end of the film, they, we, we discover some of them haven't spoken in years and everybody so beautifully encompassed in the moment that you described Marsh, like realizes in their own way, like, man, we had it so good didn't we even in the tight times and again t-i-g-h-t times and some (laughs) t-i-t-e times plenty of t-i-t-e but that's it you know that's the 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 harmonic balance that both of these films really stress you know early on in the film in the five heartbeats that is made explicitly clear by Robert Townsend's character. Like when it when even in their first number, it's like kind of all going to shit. It's like, well, maybe we'll go on without so and so. Maybe we'll we'll just I'll do this and that. And he says, I wrote this shit in five part harmony. All the music in five part harmony. It's only gonna work in five part harmony. And what is like Ja saying in his own way? It's like society is so much better with harmony. It's not perfect. Nothing is. No one's perfect. No society's perfect. No government's perfect. No world's perfect. But when we all sing together, like that's really where the 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 beauty truly lies, you know? Mm-hmm. And fitting then that both films end with reunions. As Kui reunites with Yin and the heartbeats reunite as well in their own way, as Duck goes to church and that is an emotionally overwhelming scene. I think anyone who enjoys this movie will be, you know, reduced to rubble when a uh, duck goes to choir yeah. boys church yeah. and sees Eddie performing with baby doll. Uh, it is, it's an incredible, incredible scene. And after seeing the lows that Eddie went through in this movie. I mean, it's like too much to bear, you know? <laughs> and it's it's a reveal, too, because it's left essentially on a cliffhanger of sorts because the last thing we hear is that radio transmission saying that he's in critical condition so that seeing him there looking healthy, l- looking active and alive as he sings that song and talks about, like, a man who believes in second chances. Yeah, it's just... It's a flood of emotions in that moment. And then even then, some of the reunions in platform in a way almost feel tragic because I, I you know, they some of them get back together, but they often feel like missed connections, you know, and there's like sort of a sadness, especially when Jiao Tao, you know, reconnects with everyone and they're just like, oh, how's the how's the job? And she's like, oh, you know, you know, it's fine. <laughs> You know, it's a job, it works. And I think that, you know, as quaint as it may be to say, I think both of these films remind us to be nostalgic for the present. You know, I think that that's something that 
many of the characters in these films, they lose sight of that harmony that you were talking about, Andy, for various reasons, whether in platform, it's trying to create a new world for themselves and rejecting elements of the past, but then forgetting about the beauty of their togetherness um, and all of them being that collective uh, as a group. And then as well as the five heartbeats, there's a multitude of factors that are distracting everyone from the beauty and harmony that is their present whether we end up in the 90s here and in the five heartbeats and they're so nostalgic for the past at least now maybe they're reminded to cherish these moments that they have together when all five of them are reunited at a lovely little barbecue with all the kids and there's a funny gag there too where the kids get excited seeing their disgraced you know, former interim lead singer as he's now singing with those those white group, the five horsemen, you know, and, and Leon makes sure to turn that TV off. And he's like, no, no, that's not real music, children. Like, you don't want to listen to any of that. And yeah, they, they, they're encouraged to give one last, last go around. You know, well, why don't you show them then? Show them what real music is. And the five of them eventually work up the courage and energy to stand up there and sing. And that's what plays it off. And, and I think that... Yeah, I think that one of the closing arguments for both of these films is to be nostalgic for the present, to to value those moments of harmony that you share with other people. Well, Ryan, uh, these were our picks. What do you got for us? What would you, you know, experience nostalgia for that that you never uh, actually went through? Well, whenever I think about nostalgia in film, and I think about the way memories explored with such loving care as to evoke a time period I haven't experienced and haven't lived through. You know, one of the great masters of that is the British filmmaker Terence Davies. And um, one particular film of his that is very special to me, a film I really love, is The Long Day Closes. And maybe I see something of just like a young boy who sees some safety in, in cinema and finds like a whole other world that he can experience through that. But the way it details London at the time the film is set and like that boy's life and his family's life and especially the way music relates to that film Terence Davies no stranger to just having extended sequences of people sitting around singing songs feeling good and sharing a moment of harmony uh, between all of them I think is really special and I think it's a a lovingly crafted film um, and one that everyone should should absolutely check out thank you Ryan Thank you. No, I mean, thank you both. This was a, this is exactly how I wanted this um, this double feature to go. And I had the idea of the you know of the films. I uh, you know I always trust you boys, but I, specifically, I think these two really made me reflect a lot about on the role nostalgia plays in cinema, the way people interact with it. And I think that um, these are two films. Normally, I probably wouldn't have paired together in my mind, but I think that they do share something deep within them. Uh, so it's nice seeing them side by side. It's also nice to see that, uh, Marsh, your, your bag over there, Marsh's mailbag, it's just looking a little fuller than normal. It looks like there might be a, a, a lone letter in there. <laughs> um, and, uh, why don't you give it a read? Let's, uh, what do you got in there for us? You've got mail. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, we do have a, a submission to Marsh's mailbag and it, uh, it certainly is of a different flavor, uh, than our previous messages, which were quite nice. Uh, and this message, uh, this letter as it were is from our old pal, friend of the pod, NATO subject heading. <laughs> 
Marsha's mailbag. Yeah, dot, dot, dot. This doesn't look good. Dear Gauntlet guys, I'm fuming. If you could see my face, it would be bright red with steam coming out of my ears making locomotive sounds. Why? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because you blithering dolts don't know a lick about movies. I bit my tongue when the Dune episode didn't cover Villeneuve's masterful rendition of Dune. I had held my breath on the April Fool's sode that didn't mention anything about one of the most iconic, messed up in the head prankster villains, the Joker. Go ahead and think about how many films he's been in. I'll wait. But the thing that set me off the most, the thing that I can't hold back the demons, the thing that pushed me over the proverbial edge was the It's Good to Be Bad episode. How in the world do you do a bad boy episode without mentioning anything about the 2012 cultural phenomenon Mud? You have Matthew McConaughey, who plays a (laughs) good-for-nothing vigilante named Mud, and Reese Witherspoon, who plays Juniper, his damn hot girlfriend, parenthesis, Awuga. This acting duo ignites the silver screen beyond anything I've ever seen. Their Joker and Harlequin-esque chemistry and chill vibes made me wiggle in my seat hardcore. This type of film is what I call an eye gluer, meaning your eyes can never leave the screen. I could honestly write a novel about how good this is, but I just can't get over the fact that you guys didn't mention it anywhere. It makes my tummy hurt. Do yourselves a favor, watch the film, open your third eye, and maybe then do a podcast about kinema, Russian for cinema. Oh, and one last thing that bugs me, your podcast is called The Gauntlet. It's about movies. Movies. Gauntlet. No mention of Thanos or Marvel. Yeah, I don't think I need to say anything else. Wow. Uh, uh, Spot the lie. A thunderous, a thunderous takedown from from NATO, from NATO Neary. NATO, if if you're listening, which I I assume you are, if you're still listening, thank you for your notes. Um, I think we're all going to take them to heart, and uh, we've got a lot of reflecting to do, and and. We need to be better, and you know we will get better. I I can I can vow to that. We'll know? start right now. Yeah, I will say I'll just qualify part of that by uh, the April Fool's episode. I did almost pick the four-hour Raj Kapoor film Joker. Close, but I didn't want to make the guy sit through a four-hour film, so that's the only reason I ended up not doing that. But you know, I was thinking about Joker, so. Different, different kind of Joker, sure, but you know, yeah, a Joker. Uh, Do with that what you will. Yeah. All right. I don't have to take this from a guy that once wore a uh, a St. Louis Rams Tebow jersey to uh, a get together we all had. But, <laughs> you know, I digress. Thanks, I guess, Marsh. Why don't you go ahead and light that letter on fire? Yeah. Um, hopefully, we'll get a a nicer letter that makes me feel good. Um, but but um, you know what makes me feel good? Picking movies for the gauntlet. So what, what do I got to pick next week, Marsh? Well, there's been a lot of talk behind the microphone on the gauntlet in recent weeks about the X-Files and Kolchak the Night Stalker and Supernatural. Uh, and this past weekend, I was mourning the death of Fred Ward, one of our finest actors, 
recently featured on It's Good to Be Bad, uh, where we talked about Miami Blues. Um, and I was paying my respects to, to Ward, and I watched uh, Tremors, and then I also watched uh, Euphoria, or ufo Ori. I don't know how to pronounce the title of this movie, but it's UFO, right, and Euphoria, so portmanteau. Uh, and this is a film that, you know, stars uh, Fred Ward uh, and Harry Dean Stanton, and it's this very funny little movie about, you know, a woman who predicts that aliens are going to come to their town. And with all this swirling around in my head, I thought, now's the time, you know? Uh, so the, the topic for next episode is the truth is out there. I want you to bring me films that explore our relationship to extraterrestrials. You got it. I'm going to turn you into a believer. I want to believe. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send a nice email to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.